This is the Roaring Elephant Live podcast for the 17th of April 2018, a podcast about Apache Hadoop and the surrounding ecosystem for anyone working with or investigating big data and advanced analytics. My name is Dave, and here is my DataWork Summit co-host, Jon. Hi, Dave. Welcome in my hotel room. Indeed, indeed. Don't tell my wife, okay? Okay, I promise. Maybe. <laughs> um, so here we are, once yeah. more. We're live in a hotel room with crappy audio. Sorry. <laughs> we do our best. Yeah, apologies Apologies for the uh, audio quality. Might not be quite as good as you're used to, but uh, yeah. we'll do our best anyway. Well, audio quality coupled with the fact that we're kind of knackered by walking around an event all day. It has been a busy sessions. day. It's been real busy. So, and, uh, yeah, let's talk about what we did. Indeed. Let's, let's get straight into it. So, for those of you that are joining us for the first time, um, as I suspect we may have a number of uh, new people to this, um, this particular episode is a little bit special, uh, this one and the next one indeed, as they are basically nightly recordings following the DataWorks Summit. So, this is just our, our impressions from the summit, maybe some some thoughts around things like the keynotes and some of the different uh, sessions that we attend and really just you know our thoughts and experiences so we've we've often had feedback this is really useful for people that can't make it to the conference or people that maybe saw some sessions and you know weren't able to make all of them and therefore would like to find out a little bit more about what else went on so hopefully uh, those kind of people will find this useful yeah, and as uh, Deja said, tomorrow, the second day, tomorrow in the evening, tomorrow night, we'll have a second episode coming out. So this is a week where two Roaring Elephant episodes come out. And yeah, we just hope they're useful for people that are listening, I guess. Indeed. Uh, maybe before we start, we do expect that all the sessions will be will have been televised, or at least videotaped, let's call it that, and will be available on YouTube at some point. Yeah. Some, uh, some it's, it's in a couple of weeks, sometimes a bit longer, but... We're pretty much going to give a heads up when we see them arrive out there so that people can watch them because it's definitely a good resource after the fact, of course. Definitely. But those we have to do without our expert commentary. Indeed, indeed. And the other thing, of course, is that the uh, at pretty much the same sort of time that the, uh, the recorded sessions appear on YouTube, um, you should also see the slides from the sessions appear on SlideShare as well. So you'll get uh, both experiences. And actually, before we continue, I'm just double-checking something here. I think we have some housekeeping about the Roaring Elephant Roadshow. We do. We do. <laughs> this is very true and well-remembered. Yes. yes. Um, so we're taking this uh, strange, bizarre podcast experience uh, live. Um, we were invited by uh, the very good folk at Codemotion um, to see if we'd like to bring the Roaring Elephant experience uh, live to an event, and uh, they're running um, a session in Amsterdam on the date of... The 9th of May, if I remember correctly. Indeed. I, I think I've tweeted about this already, so it should be available on yeah. Twitter, but I'm pretty sure it's the 9th of May. So it's, it's, it's 8th and 9th, but we're going to be there on the 9th, so that's obviously going to be the best day. <laughs> <laughs> um, and yeah, we're going to be talking about the state of big data, so uh, um, yeah, come and, come and join us, come and join the fun. And uh, look forward to seeing some of you here. Um, also, we have the ability to give away some free tickets to this event. Again, it's uh, it's in Amsterdam, so you'll need to find your own uh, own travel and potentially accommodation. Um, but uh, we do have some tickets, and the process for winning those tickets, uh, as you can 
obviously see Dave now points at me while I'm not looking at him, which makes for great radio. <laughs> yeah, the process is going to be a little bit different. Uh, usually you have these raffles where we just uh, ask people to put stuff on Twitter and things like that. But because we will be doing another raffle in a couple of weeks, of which I'm not going to give much details yet, but a faithful listeners will probably be able to guess what it is. We're going to do this one a little bit different. Uh, basically, when you hear this, if you want a ticket, send an email send it to an email address let's make a new email address let's call it codemotion2018 all one word at roaringelephant.org yeah first three people send in an email to that email address codemotion2018 at roaringelephant.org get the tickets uh, and just just for clarity we're saying 2018 as a number rather than spelling it out well i'll accept both <laughs> <laughs> fair enough okay as you can see dear audience we planned this well Oh, yes. Uh, but yes, free tickets are available, only limited offer though, so uh, get those emails coming into us and uh, we should be able to announce very soon uh, the winners of that particular short but sweet contest. Yeah. And again, thanks to the guys from Code Motion for inviting us, of course. Absolutely. And letting looking, us uh, hand up tickets. Yeah, looking forward to it. Should be fun. So that's that's one event to come. Um, however, we've been uh, all day today wandering around, uh, talking and listening at the DataWorks Summit 2018. So, I mean, how was it for you, Jan? Tiring. <laughs> Hurt feet. Uh, it was good, actually. I mean, I met a lot of people again. It's always good to have uh, the networking, the connecting in with people in the whole industry. Yeah. Uh, um, one of the things I remarked is that the uh, the, the exposition hall, they have little booths of, uh, of companies, had a couple of new faces there, companies I really hadn't known before. So they are mixing that up a little bit, too, because I'm seeing always the same, mm-hmm. not to say old sames, but it's nice to see some new blood in there, too. So that was, yeah. that was good. Um, and yeah, the sessions will be going over in detail, of course. Yeah. But uh, no, I was quite happy to be here actually. Yeah, yeah. I was, I was always, uh, I always find these these things are as much about the socialising and the networking as the sessions themselves. Yeah. And this 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 event was uh, definitely no different, and it's great to sort of catch up with people and how people recognise you or whatever it might be, and and just you know, yes. strike up. Thank you to the nice people that said that they liked the podcast. Thank you very much. Yeah, indeed. And uh, <laughs> feedback is always welcome, Definitely. positive or negative. Uh, we like we like to hear everything. So, but primarily the positive, please. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Jan's a sensitive little flower. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, so let's let's get into it. Otherwise, we'll be chatting here for ages. Um, Start with the keynotes. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, John Chrysler strides on as as the warm up guy for the event. Um, and really just sort of warmed up with a, a number of statistics that just keep on getting scarier and larger as uh, as each year goes on. Um, and he handed across to Scott now. Yeah, CTO of uh, Hortmers at the moment, if Indeed. I'm not mistaken. Who basically... I mean, he had, he had one core message, really, didn't he? Which was yeah. sort of... Your data strategy is equal to your cloud strategy, which is equal to your business strategy. They're all interlinked. It's it, not quite. It's all the same thing, but they are all very, Inter- very interdependent. Yeah, you can't do one without the other. Or you're going to have you're going to paint yourself in corners, which you won't be getting, able to get out of anymore. Yeah. The I've heard the business strategy is your data strategy before. Mm-hmm. Being the cloud strategy being added to that one is a, was a new one for me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've heard the thing before, but yeah. to have it posted like this, clear and, uh, and typical on that, that was a 
I mean, I'm in a cloud world at the moment, so I'm obviously overjoyed by that. <laughs> it does make sense because you will definitely with IoT things. I was also already talked about uh, IoT things will have stuff in the edge, uh, on the edge stuff in the cloud. They have stuff on prem stuff everywhere. And that was then also his little link to the next part of his talk, which was about the governance and security, which becomes harder in that cloud, big, more chaotic environment, let's say, which have yeah. less control, which means you have to have stuff in place that keep governance and lineages in check. Yeah, yeah. So, um, and have, have that sort of holistic vision across yep. on-prem, cloud, potentially multiple clouds. Yeah. And it was actually a bit of a lead into the, the Hortonworks new, new service, the data plane service. But uh, I must say he didn't really do it as a sales pitch. No. I think he mentioned it once. That yeah, was it. Once so that was, that was actually it. nice. I was kind of afraid at a certain point, oh, God, he's going to go a full sales mode here. But no, nice way of handling that. That was, that was actually good. And, of course, they, the Hortonworks did release the data steward law, uh, yesterday, last night, yeah. I think, something. Yeah. So that's uh, also a component that's in there for people that don't know these things yet. We're not going to put a, talk too much here because it's going to take an hour. But uh, look up, look it up. It's a new thing from Hortonworks and uh, looks interesting. Yeah, haven't really look, had a chance to look into it myself too much. I think but, we'll see. Uh, uh, we'll see it demonstrated tomorrow morning. Actually, there's going to be some demos in the keynotes. It's been announced. We'll see. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, demos are always dangerous. Definitely keynotes. <laughs> <laughs> By dangerous, you mean exciting? Oh uh, yes, exciting <laughs> for the. Audience, I guess. Yeah. It's always horrible to be presenter when you do it. Demo doesn't work. <laughs> uh, apart from that, he also brought up some. He, oh, yeah. Dave was actually very happy to hear the oh, data God. is a new oil uh, acronym. Yeah. Uh, what's he called actually, a meme out there. He actually referred to. Uh, he didn't say data is the new oil, thankfully. But he did refer he to the phrase refine the new oil. And I'm. Oh, dear. Please, please, anybody out there. Can we stop using that tired old trope? Uh, well, he also said it a bit like, yeah, it's the tired old trope, but it's still true, I guess. Mm. I guess. Mm. Ah, give the man a break, come on. But yeah, I mean, his his point was that, you know, he, one of his points was around the fact that the the gravity of data is changing, as there is more, as you said earlier, IoT data, yeah. you know, more, more data oh. generated cloud native. Yeah, he actually said data has gravity. But that, that gravity is also changing. It used to be everything got produced in your data center, and therefore yeah. that's where you'd put your Hadoop. But now people are generating more data, at least as much, sometimes more data externally, in cloud, you know, yeah. in other areas and other zones. That Which has gravity over there, center. and exactly. it's not that easy just pull it over because right. there is a, a force, usually in money, <laughs> yeah, yeah. To, to, to avoid you just well, uh, Money, it time, you know, uh, all Time is things. money. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it it was it was a it was it's a interesting um, interesting approach an interesting look at things yeah made a lot of yeah. sense it was a bit it was also a bit of a new approach new angle in there so it did repeat a couple of, of more things we always hear but hey it's a keynote it's the first keynote of the day they have to they're always new people in the audience yeah. so they have to put that in there yeah yeah, yeah. but uh, yeah also actually okay. So, second keynote, moving on directly, was, oh yes, it was Mandy Chessel from IBM. Indeed. Uh, who, to my very delight, surprise, <laughs> uh, gave a quite technical keynote, actually, yeah. on uh, on Atlas, to be honest. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, our faithful listeners will know that we, at, at least I've declared Atlas dead a couple of times already. <laughs> <laughs> but that was just a ploy to make people pay attention again. Yeah. But totally. uh, seeing, this, uh, seeing Atlas being actually the second keynote here, the first day... By IBM, by, yeah, really. by IBM, yeah. rather than by 
yeah, by Horton or by, or by the PMC or the ones that have the vested yeah. interest. Yeah. I mean, it's known that IBM took over, or not took over, but has put a lot of effort into Atlas in the last yeah. 12 months, let's say, 10, 12 months. I, I think it's been significantly longer than that. It's been well, a couple of years. Public, been, let's uh, say, when they start making noise. Mm-hmm. And, uh, well, being on, uh, on stage and keynote and really doing a technical session on Atlas, that was actually nice. Uh, there wasn't much new in the whole thing, except for the fact that there's a it's, it's it's expanding. But the whole idea of governance and lineage being embedded in there, it being a central place to put the governance data from a lot of places in there. That's all. Yeah, that's think, what Atlas was supposed to be doing. Yeah. So I think that the, the piece that was new in that really though was the, the 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 sort of the conversation around the fact that the ODPI has sort of pivoted towards. Yeah. More of this kind of this metadata um, and data governance PMC role, and that you know people like IBM, Hortonworks, and ING were the other people that were announced during that session, yeah, all working together on sort of open and uh, unified metadata story involving Apache Atlas, or you know with Apache Atlas at the core of it. So I thought that was it was it was really nice to see. I often talk about community and collaboration, mm-hmm. and to me that was a great example of some some really top quality collaboration across multiple organisations and different organisations as well. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you can't compare an ING with an IBM. No, no. Yes, or, or people, Hortonworks, but, or Hortonworks. Yeah, I mean, yeah. IBM and Hortonworks could still say that they're, they're, they're computer companies. Ma- maybe they're both. Maybe they're both vendors, but I but I see them as very yeah. very different yeah, styles of organisations. So I. Yeah, I think it's it's great news, and I think that uh, I agree. Actually, I think Mandy's keynote was was excellent. Yeah, it's excellent. And actually, I've seen her on uh, on YouTube before with uh, presentations like this. So, uh, oh, okay. if uh, you haven't seen her yet, um, it's it's worth it because uh, she's yeah. also very down to earth. No, uh, I'm going to say she's not talking down to you. She's just really enthusiastic just about the whole you. thing. Yeah, yeah. it's really yeah. It, was, it was actually a nice, very nice thing. Yeah, very nice. So next up, um, Bernard Ma. Um, so, I yeah yeah. yeah. For, for those that for those that can't see uh, Jon kind of <laughs> shaking his head from side to side, I, I was a little bit let down by this session, uh, and I think Jon was as well yeah. because he he introduced it as um, sort of looking to focus on the top five business use cases and the biggest mistakes to avoid and. To, to his credit, he, he did actually go into a reasonable amount of detail um, on the sort of top the top five business use cases, uh, at least for a keynote. Yeah, um, but there were I'm going I'm there were the same five old key uh, use cases I that are always being trumped up. To be honest, I mean, had the the, like, the agricultural thing in there. Well, so the, I mean, the let's, let's just, let's just quickly quickly run them off because as, as I've got them noted down here. So right, one yes. was making uh, informed decision-making. The second one was a better understanding of your customers. The third one was improving customer value proposition. The fourth one was automating key business processes. And the fifth one was monetization of data. So yeah, I mean, there's nothing spectacularly new there, but I thought the explanations and the examples, he gave multiple examples for each of them, and some of them I, I hadn't actually heard before. Um, so I thought I thought that part of it was actually really yeah, quite good. But, but it missed the wow factor because there wasn't any. Okay, there were nice use cases, and I'm sure I can read up on them somewhere and use them in my business. But 
okay, but there was like no point to it. It it felt a little bit like it could have been a session instead of a yeah, keynote. Exactly. But the thing that uh, that I so I didn't mind that bit of it. Yeah, I know the what you didn't mind. Was was <laughs> what uh, you mean? the thing that I think let it down though was he didn't. I don't know whether he didn't have time. He didn't feel like it because the the slides you know went exactly, to a, yeah. a conclusion. But he didn't actually cover the biggest mistakes to avoid. And I think that was really disappointing because I think you can always learn more from other people's mistakes than you can from just hearing about successes and go do all these wonderful things. It's it's a great message, but actually learning from other things that people have tried and failed at and learning from that is a a far better accelerator. Or at least give some some tips. Don't forget to do this. Don't forget to do that. And that, that, that would have given it a little bit of a wow factor for me. Maybe yeah. something, oh, God, yeah, I never thought that could happen. And that kind of made it fall flat. And also, I think he was supposed to fill the, the visionary role here. And I would say earlier years had better visionaries in there. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. So that being said, though, the final uh, keynote, I think, was actually the best one, which I didn't expect it to be. I Do I agree with that? I think I possibly do agree with that. Oh, my God. Hell has thrown over. Indeed, indeed. <laughs> Munich Re. Um, yeah, an insurance company. Yeah, a, a reinsurance company. Sorry, reinsurance company. Um, yeah, so that was uh, Andreas, Andreas Kulmer, I think. Uh, yeah. Um, and essentially talking about, well, really just talking about Munich Re's journey, mm-hmm. really, about their, their journey through big data. Um, you know, a little bit of an introduction. Um, a bit of a conversation about how they how they got to why they where they got to with their big data journey, um, and you know some really nice down to earth, yep. very clear anecdotes about their journey. So things like they sort of announced on a um, at a point in time, sort of nine a.m. that, uh, that they, they, <laughs> their data lake was now live. And uh, they were predicting that they had about 50 users that would be interested in this. Um, and sort of within within sort of uh, 45 minutes, 50 users were logged on and exploring the data lake. They had a variety of different sort of interfaces that people could use. Yeah, then he said, yeah, that's our family. Now everybody we know, so that's going to be about it, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Unfortunately, there were about 200 users by 6 p.m. and about 450 users a week after that. So um, it was. It was, and this is the kind of story that I hear really yeah. regularly: is people drastically underestimate the um, the volume of people in an organisation that are interested in experimenting, visualising, yeah. querying, and generally interacting with data in a data lake. Yeah, there's that, that saying: if you build it, they will come. And in the data lake, that actually seems to be the case. It's certainly in terms of curiosity. Yeah. I, I would argue that if you build it, they come as a, a dangerous approach if you're just going to do it without having any use cases. They had a and, bunch of... Well, not even not just use cases, because that was one of the two points that he gave, that if you're going to do this, make sure that, one, you have content in there. Yeah. Don't just give it a blank slate, because then people actually, well, they'll come, they'll look, see, not, and go away again. Yeah. So that was one. And the second thing, if I remember correctly, was make it easy for them to use it. Because yeah. you will have, okay, they expected the 50 tech users, but they got yeah. four, 500 users. There were a lot of business users in there as well. Yeah. You yeah. want to keep those guys. Yes, you will need the content. And you have to give them a language or a method that they understand. Yeah. 
Yeah. So that was nice to have that, that kind of feedback from. But also the, the the really the really nice part about the the story, sort of actually dialing it back a little bit, is they they talked about essentially they talked about their their very first use case, which was their very first, uh, I guess, proof of concept, mm-hmm. where they they got um, you know uh, two people to take a look at some data, um, and you know they managed to find several million euros worth of of. You know, money they could save within the organization and the, for me the you could see it when he was talking about it that that was the point where the light really came on for the organization yep. was if two people looking at this data can save you know multiple millions of euros in a few days what could what could happen if we gave the entire business access to this data now, obviously, we know, and, and he also went through, there are multiple reasons why you can't just you know, grant wide open access to all the data to everybody. But the concept and the approach is absolutely classic. And I think, I hope that will never change. And the, the power of people that want to do interesting things with data, you know, to further, to better the organisation, to further, you know, what they're doing, to find better ways, better, smarter ways of doing things. I think was was very much in place there, and yeah, great session. Great, yeah, the great. nice end of the keynotes, just yeah. to leave everybody on a happy note. Let's say. Yeah, yeah, very much so. Um, so <laughs> after that was a, a short break. Uh, you're not going to mention the fact that there was no show, there was no bouncy balloons, lights, you know I was, I was actually kind of happy with that because. <laughs> The, well, last year you got blinded by lasers. Remember? Well, it, it was blinded by lasers and deafened by, uh, yeah, by an audio system that was very, very badly calibrated. Um, whereas, okay, this time unfortunately there was no sort of uh, show as such, and maybe that was okay. a bit disappointing. I was trying to tease Dave out here, but he's not. He's not falling for it. But we had a logo on the big screen. Man. We did have hey, our logo on the big on. screen. So yeah, the Roaring Elephant <laughs> Podcast media sponsor of the Data Work Summit. Thank you very much. Thank you, Hollyworks. Thank Indeed. you, Dataworks Summit. Indeed, it was it was fun. It was good. Indeed, <laughs> that was that was far better than the show. <laughs> so yeah, on to on to the sessions. Yeah, onto the real work there. So mm-hmm. I got one, two, three, uh, two sessions we will talk about, and two little less. Mm-hmm. Not sure how many you have. You really want to go in depth on? Um, I don't know. Let's just roll through it as we go. Chronological order. Well, we ended the same session because we went to the same session at the end of the day. That's so, true. And I want you to talk about that one, so I'll start. Okay, go. Oh, God, go there. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the first one I went to, uh, as actually advertised on our previous episode, mm-hmm. uh, was the accelerated qu- Accelerating Query Processing with Materialized Views in Apache Hive. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was given by Jesus Camacho Rodriguez by, uh, from Hortonworks. Mm-hmm. I actually went to all Hortonworks uh, sessions for some reason. I didn't even... I didn't really Select them on that basis, but it just turned out that way. Just except the, the last way. one. Uh, but actually, yeah, there was a session about materialized views in Apache Hive. Now, materialized views aren't new in the SQL world. If you're doing a lot of data warehousing and SQL data, mm-hmm. you have to materialize views. Uh, Hive didn't have that until now, so that's coming in Hive 3.0, which is going to be released apparently in May. So it's very soon. It's very right around the corner. Now, I'm pretty sure that means Apache Hive 3.0, and it's going to take a while for that to filter down into any distribution like HTTP or CDH or whatever you're using. Mm-hmm. Uh, but again, if you want to use, it's open source, if you want to jump the gun, great, but still Hive 3.0, be 
Beware the Tree. Of dot O releases. Always make it dot O dot one. But to start playing with it, apparently it should be stable enough. And the yeah the reason that they give uh, to make materialized views interesting is that a lot of people actually duplicate their data because they want to have some denormalization happening so they can avoid joints because joints are costly, mm-hmm. or to have data uh, tables with aggregations so they don't have to aggregate all again and again and again. Mm-hmm. However, if you do that, you create you create a CTAS query to create a new table with the aggregation in there. Every time the source data changes, you have to have something in place that updates your dependent tables. That's sure. it's a manual thing, and that always goes wrong. <laughs> a materialized view, just like a normal view, is just getting its data from a source table automatically. The difference between a normal view and a materialized, materialized view is that the materialized view is actually a new table. Okay. It is real copying of data at that point, although there were some cases where instead of creating a new table, it could do it by just adding an extra column to an existing source table, which you just didn't see happen behind the scene. So there were certain ways of optimization in there already. And the, the, the nice thing here is that you can just say, okay, rebuild, and it will then, and that's actually better than what the SQL, uh, materials, some SQL materialized views do. With mm. the Hive thing, it can actually not just do a full rebuild, but just look at, okay, since last rebuild, what has added, what yeah, has okay. changed, diff the changes and do a, and an incremental rebuild. update. Mm-hmm. And the, the huge advantage there is that if you have cache generating with an LAP, for example, mm-hmm. if you do a full rebuild, you invalidate your cache. This way you don't. Oh, nice. Uh, nice little thing is there. That's a nice touch. Stuff you don't really think about. Also, it can be backed by both Hive or Druid. Mm-hmm. So it's really Druid integration there as well. So that was also nice. Mm-hmm. And the the nice, the, the very, very nice thing here, and actually I never even thought about this one, is that if you make one of those materialized views, mm-hmm. you don't even have to use them to have advantage from them. Because if you then do a select statement or whatever, from the source um, uh, tables. Mm-hmm. But the Hive server optimizers knows that there's a materialized view that actually has an uh, aggregate already, or part of the aggregate. The, optim- the query optimizer will actually start using that view automatically. Oh, that's smart. See, that's I, I like things that are smarter. It's just plan than, comes together. Right? Yeah, I mean, smarter than the user is, is, is good in my book. Yeah. If, if, if something is working in the background to make it faster, regardless of what you put as your input, that is... Yeah, yeah, yeah. That is and that's just powered by Apache CalSight, which is behind the yeah. optimizer for Hive, of course. So that's just, uh, that's just that's the thing that the materialized view just so gives you. Now, there are a couple of limitations at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see. Um, yeah. Well, uh, by the way, you, those, that automatic rewrite of your query, you can also make a materialized view and tell the view this one should not be used because I'm not going to rebuild it often enough. It's going to get stale data anyway, so optimize just disregard it. There's a little flag you can set for that. Mm-hmm. And uh, as I just say, it also has a staleness uh, uh, functionality in there that the optimizer can see what time, how long it's been since the last rebuild. And if it's too long, it'll mark it as stale and say, okay, I'm not going to use it anymore until the rebuild has been done. So that kind of functionality is already included as well. Um, let's see. Uh, one of the limitations is that it only supports you to insert into the source tables. You can't do updates or delete in the source tables because that will break your materialized view. Mm-hmm. So that's a limitation there. Of course, you can do it and then rebuild it from f- fully. Yeah. Should, should just work. And I also think he said it had to be asset tables, but I've looked through my notes and I can't find it anymore. So big question mark. But that. Struck my mind that he said that you had to have asset tables, and also kind of makes sense because you have a dependency between two tables. Mm. You can't have half an update happening to that materialized view. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you have to make sure that when you do the rebuild, that the table, the source table, is in a 
and uh, non-corrupt and corrupt is a bad word but in a in a, in a, in a uh, stable state let's yeah. say so it wouldn't surprise me at all I think he said it but I couldn't find it in my notes anymore uh, future roadmap he gave two things that's uh, the last thing I want to talk about here is that they're also going to build a kind of an advisor recommender thing so you can be able to to, to to kind of profile your data landscape and it'll kind of tell you should make a materialized view on these things based on the queries you're running mm-hmm. so that's a nice thing and of, of course automating the Making those those materials yeah, just easy as well. That's next. That's easy enough to do. Yeah. Because basically the SQL syntax is like create table. Only you create materialized view, and yeah. at the end instead of giving it fields and uh, types, you give it the select it has to run to fill that view. Mm-hmm. So it's easy enough to do. And the second thing they were looking at is oh yeah, that at the moment now the materialized view is basically only doing what standard SQL does. Right. But since we know it's on Hive. Hive has partitioning and bucketing. Mm. Standard SQL doesn't know that, mm. but Hive has that. So let's see if it can also leverage that to, um, uh, to make okay. it faster, more performant. Yeah. So making it more, uh, yeah, deeper. So t- into t- the taking the advantage of the integrations. Of exactly, the of knowing where yeah. that's from. So it was a good talk. Um, at the, and a lot of people who was even the, the, the session next to us, okay, can't wait, <laughs> can't wait for them to have this. Because <laughs> a lot of the, the database people are actually going to be very happy with this, I think. And um, yeah, it's a fun thing. It seems to be well thought out and pretty much production ready they, they know what limitations are they're working on those yeah and uh, it's ready to go so uh, looking forward to, uh, to see it in Hive 3.0 nice nice so so talking of uh, 3.0 related things uh, I my first session was the uh, yarn state of the nation so uh, and that was by and actually unfortunately I don't have the co-speaker's name so uh, Wang De Tan was the was one of the speakers, and there was a second speaker who unfortunately is not in the app, so must have been swapped in, um, possibly at uh, somewhat shorter notice. Um, I think it was Belinda was her first name, um, but uh, don't quote me on that. And they were sort of really just running through um, the uh, the experiences and uh, yeah, some of the changes and the the sort of the roadmap really for for Yarn where it's come from, where it is now, where it's going to. Um, this was, uh, so this was a, a Horton work session, and it was um, very much what you expect from, um, you know, very serious, um, you know, committer-level presentations where there's a lot, uh, you know, literally a massive amount of detail to try and get through in a relatively short period of time. Um they they do end up being very kind of rapid fire, um, lots of lots of text on the slides, lots of references to things like Jira's, so that you can actually when you see the slide share, you'll be able to go and follow up and get more detail afterwards, in, and you'll be able to drill into the the particular things yeah. that you're interested in. So I think these are a very particular style of presentation. Some people love them, some people hate them. Um, I really enjoy them because they. The, the talk track that the presenters give plus the detail in the slides really give you a, a very strong picture about things. Now, in terms of the details, um, I, there's, there's really too much to spend a lot of time on, but I'll just call out, call out a few sort of a few pieces. Um, one was really the, the nice explanation of, of where, where Hive came from and the fact that really over the last um, sort of nearly year or so, <coughs> excuse me, um, that the, really the, the 2.x branch of Hive is 
really largely on a stabilization push. Um, like the last nine releases, including sort of point and point releases, maintenance releases for the various 2.x branches, um, really all around sort of elements of bug fixing and and stabilization. Um, only relatively minor additions sort of to the the 2.6 uh, sort of yeah the 2.x branch of late. Um, but of course, that doesn't mean that they've been idle. There's been plenty of uh, interesting stuff being sort of fired into um, Yarn 3.0. The the biggest piece um, that I saw around this, well, I guess there were two real kind of focus areas. One was around um, really more sites with larger clusters. Uh, you know, they, they quoted sort of Yahoo, Twitter, LinkedIn, Microsoft, Alibaba. And, you know, previously when we were talking about large clusters, we were talking about between six to 8,000 nodes. The sort of 8,000 nodes for Yahoo Japan was the, the consistent number that I've been rattling around yeah, in my yeah, head yeah. For, for sort of uh, about a year or so now. And you know, the, the bar has been raised. And the numbers that they were talking about, I was very, very excited about. Because they were talking essentially up to about 20,000 nodes for a single cluster now um, and uh, currently easily 40,000 nodes in a federated cluster situation and you know they're looking at the roadmap for 100,000 nodes plus um, and you know, I think that um, this this is the kind of scalability that I think is, is really exciting because if you if you think all the way back to what we were talking about at the very start in John Chrysler's conversation, and certainly you know some of the others mentioned some of the astonishing sort of numbers around the the number of petabytes, exabytes, and zottabytes, and any other bytes that people are creating in terms of data volumes, um, this kind of scalability is going to become more and more important as as we bring more and more data on. Um, the the sort of the other they went through many many different elements and I would definitely recommend that if you're interested in the core of this go ahead and check out the the YouTube link and the screen share sorry the slide share when they become available um, but the the sort of the second major component that was discussed during this um, was really around the sort of containerization uh, on top of Yarn the ability to run you know, data-driven microservices in containers, in Yarn containers, uh, and also the ability to then uh, package up those um, those things together as a Docker container and run that run that Docker container on Yarn. Um, and it wasn't really, you know, the, the, definitely the approach is not to replace um, things like you know Kubernetes or Mesos or whatever, really because those are more general purpose containerization. This is specifically for very heavily data-driven applications that spend all of their time, you know, reading and writing data, you know, to and from HDFS, and it it's useful to, you know, package your own uh, applications that way. They one of the conversations was, you know, if you if you've ever built your own um, yarn application, uh, and sort of deployed that, then it's it's a little bit of a tedious process. You know, you've got to <laughs> grab grab your tarballs or jar files and your config files and your custom scripts and get all that together, and then find a way to to push it out onto Yarn through probably some APIs. And it's just 
so much easier to just build a docking container that already packages that app and away you go. So there's there's lots and lots of other kind of interesting stuff like the new Yarn web UI that uh, is certainly far prettier than the old version. Um, and then, you know, it really went on to um, sort of the the sort of the 3.2 timeline and, and what's happening uh, next with that. Um, so the, the Q&A I always find can be some of the most interesting stuff yep. of all the sessions. And just sort of um, a couple of things I thought were interesting that people were asking. So there's also there's a new um, timeline service that comes with Yarn that sounds very, very cool. Um, it's HBase backed, so it does mean that you will need now an HBase in order to uh, to run Yarn. Um, but you, know, you can start off with just an embedded HBase into this. Exactly, like the Ranger thing also uses HBase on the department. Exactly, exactly. Um, so you, you can go ahead and do that, um, but it, um, it also provides... Um, you know, far more performant um, mm. sort of experience that was really lacking on the previous um, timeline server. So it's a replacement for the old timeline server. Yeah, oh, yeah, okay. exactly. Um, and there was also some questions around um, sort of um, you know, network isolation and um, sort of disk I/O uh, and that side of things with the with sort of capacity schedule and how that could be done. Um, and the response was, well, the disk I/O isn't currently in the timeline, but it is something that they're looking to to try and figure out later on this year. So it's okay. it's it's something that's very much top of mind. But it was it was a really good session. I've really only barely skimmed it. There was so much material, but um, yeah, really detailed. And that's if you're interested in the past, present, and future of Yarn, I thoroughly recommend it. There's been talk also to have the Kubernetes running on your Hadoop cluster, actually, but I've never had anybody explain to me if it's going to be Kubernetes running on top of Yarn or on the side of Yarn. Any anything about no, that? No, no mentions of anything like that, really. If this was purely just, you can run Docker containers on Yarn. On Yarn. That was okay. it. All right. Well, my uh, next session actually follows in nicely because uh, my session was about Ozone and HDFS ah, evolution by okay. Sanjay Radia. One of the founders of Hortonworks, and uh, yeah, talking about people who talk fast and have a lot of slides and talking about a lot of zeros, and you're still trying to take notes so you can do it in the podcast, it's hopeless. <laughs> but uh, basically, this ozone thing, which I'm going to explain, of course, in a moment, actually is a result of those still ever growing uh, clusters. Because mm-hmm. as uh, Sanjay uh, explained, HDFS actually works pretty well. And if you look at the data side of it, the state side of it, the blocks and everything, that pretty much scales horizontally and there's no issue there. That just works brilliantly. There is, however, a problem with the namespace and the name node because the namespace and the name node is completely loaded in memory mm-hmm. and is apparently limited. I didn't know that to 500 million objects. Okay. So if your cluster starts growing to these tens of thousands of nodes, you will hit it at a certain point, and that's apparently where this ozone uh, kind of comes in. Because mm-hmm. ozone, and there's a second part, which is called HDDS, I think. I've checked my notes, I'm pretty sure it's HDDS, yeah. Um, are going to replace HDFS at a certain point. Okay. Now, uh, I think we've mentioned ozone very briefly in one of the we news have, episodes where yeah. we kind of thought maybe it's an, a kind of a kudu thing or something like that. Nope, not at all. It's nothing to do with NoSQL. It's just a replacement of the data node, name service, name node, namespace service, whatever it is, 
to make it more scalable. Okay. At that point, he's kind of started explaining, okay, when we saw that these limitations exist in HDFS, what are the things we can do? We can go from a hierarchical namespace to a flat key value namespace, that's easily chartable. We can, instead of loading it all into memory, go into a, a working set into memory. Mm-hmm. And basically, after a lot of background and Jira information, mm-hmm. the decision that apparently was made to go to a flat key value uh, namespace. Mm-hmm and a working set in memory. The easiest advantage you see here is that your name node starts very, a lot faster. Because yeah. one of the things when you start a Hadoop cluster is waiting for that name node to load the whole thing, check the whole thing, and yes, it's available. If you only work with a small working set, well, depending on how big that is, and it should be reasonably small actually, and grow over time and, be, and shrink again. Yeah. It would just start a lot faster, of course, and by having that memory limit no longer be an issue, you can automatically scale a lot higher than just the 500 million objects. Uh, I'm not going to go into all the details because, as I said, just as in your previous one, there's a lot of information there, but let's just very quickly go through what I have here. So I talked about that. So there's two parts of it, Ozone or O3, as a, uh, I could sometimes make it shorter. ACDS is the storage layer, so where you have the, uh, the what's it called, These the data node part is will mm-hmm. be ACDS. You have the ozone will replace the name server daemon, and in between you'll have something that's called a container manager. Because mm-hmm. where before you had a two-step approach to a file, you talked to the name node who told you where the, 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 the block was you needed, and you went to the data node and got the block. Yeah. You have, but the problem there was that apparently those two layers weren't uh, actually 100% separate from, the, from each other. They should have been, but there was some craft creeping in here and there, so it wasn't a nice delineation anymore. Now, Ozone is completely separate from HDDS. Apparently, you could put Ozone on top of HD, on, on the HDFS uh, blocks as well, if it should mm-hmm. also work. But uh, yeah, you would have less of the advantages there. But the container manager in between now, so you have a three-step approach now. You'll con- contact Ozone, he'll tell you, talk to this uh, container manager. And the container manager is then a number of blocks in a container that'll tell you, okay, this is where your block, your, your file, your, your, your piece of information that you're looking for. Uh, does, that, does that also then give you some sort of caching or acceleration advantage? Not as I, there wasn't any caching involved. I think it's, yes, there will be some caching because the container manager is something that has a memory yeah, caching space. results. Yeah, it will yeah. be there, but I, he didn't really say it was going to be caching. So mm-hmm. when you say caching, you expect it to be a function of the, the thing. It's more like a program when it loads information, it has a, a swap file, it has a yeah. cache file. So there will be some uh, speed up there, but it's more in a way that it won't be a, a, a slowdown. Mm-hmm. To make sure that it's going to be fast still, so they must have some caching in there as well. Uh, so fully separated. Um, apparently the HDDS uh, is using containers that can use two gigabytes, two 16 gigabyte blocks. But to start with, the first release would be based on four gigabyte blocks. And that means we will only have tens of billions of objects possible. Well, it's just not good enough. Yeah, but that's the first step with four gigabytes. <laughs> and the idea is then to go to 16, which is not a by four, but I think to the power four in wow. the number of objects. Okay. So that uh, should be good enough. Uh, another thing is changing is uh, journal nodes are going away. Going away. Uh, they're no longer going to fall tolerance to journal nodes. They're going to use something called Raft. Apparently, Raft is something that everybody knows about except me, so I have to do some digging here. <laughs> I'm looking at Dave, but I don't see any lights burning in his eyes either. So apparently, Raft is the thing that's going to make sure that your fault tolerance is being enabled. It sounds like it's an existing project. I'm going to have to dig into it when we get back home after the event. But uh, Raft's going to be both used both for the HDDS as for the Ozone part of it. So it's going to be everywhere there. 
but no journal notes I think is a good thing because those things were also, also a bit of a bother as far as, I, as I'm concerned. Uh, start fast start we talked about. Uh, also, yeah, he also said that the adoption of the new versions of the new system is going to be quite painless because it's actually similar, not the same, but similar to S3. And it's in a lot of things like Hive and Spark knew that they were going to run on S3 in some situations. Mm -hmm. They made sure they could run with a flat key value namespace okay. on an S3-like system. And apparently that's pretty much what they need to do to make it work on Ozone plus ACDS. Nice. So nice. from that point of view, uh, as he said, two years ago, if somebody asked me if it's going to be a problem, I'm going to say, yeah, big problems today. Mm. Uh, yeah, it shouldn't be a problem at all because everybody already has done all the work that needs to be done to make this uh, work in their application. So that's a good thing. Nice. Uh, somebody in the Q&A asked if there's going to be an upgrade path from ACFS to, uh, to Ozone plus ACDS. He said yes, but with no further details. And I'm kind of thinking, and I could be totally wrong here, so this is just Jon saying this. Uh, the one thing he also said is that you can actually have Ozone running simultaneously on the same cluster with ACFS. You can have an Ozone ACDS mm -hmm. and ACFS running on the same cluster and accessible by the same cluster. Because one of the fun parts about uh, Hadoop is that with the URIs, if you have an ADL colon or HFS colon or in this case O3 colon, you can access different files, uh, file systems in your Hadoop cluster. So maybe the upgrade part is make a new one with Ozone and do this CP or something to the other one. That might be enough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or even um, you know, go as as data ages out, shrink one and mm. and increase the other. Maybe. Well, no, I'm not talking about. It. He actually did say, and I mentioned it, that Ozone <coughs> can actually work with the block structure of the old ACFS file system, and maybe it's going to be an in-between way where you replace the name node with the Ozone, mm. but leave HDFS the data nodes and then use ACDS for the new stuff and so that's going to be they're going to make it easy apparently yeah, yeah, so yeah. we'll, uh, we'll nice. just trust I mean uh, these guys Hadoop has been pretty good in the past with doing uh, this kind of upgrade part so let's assume that's good um, there is a community effort to add uh, hierarchical namespaces in there if it's going to go through or not I wasn't clear about that but at the moment just like on S3 you just simulate hierarchies by adding slash to your file name it's just a file, it's a key value, but yeah. for us poor humans, that might just still be useful. Uh, talked about that, talked about adoption. Uh, dot two. Uh, he did uh, <laughs> uh, kind of yell out, I should say, that you shouldn't expect any users of Ozone in the cloud. Because it runs on disks, and disks in the cloud are expensive. And he's right. <laughs> Man, he's, yeah, and yeah, disks yeah. to VM is expensive. Yeah. And all the clouds... Uh, except Amazon, I guess, because S3 isn't, oh, isn't that good as a, as a Hadoop backend. But Google has their cloud storage and Azure has the ADLS thing. Yeah. He said, use that stuff. It's built for them. Yeah, yeah. And I actually agree with him. With my knowledge from Azure, I know that pretty much everything works very well on ADLS, the exception being HBase, because if you have HBase with a very, a very high amount of uh, small queries, NoSQL queries, that sometimes uh, can yeah, uh, pass yeah. You miss out on the short circuit reads. Yeah, but apart from that, ADLS things, if you're going to a public cloud, look at what the public cloud offers and do that. Mm. Not because Ozone doesn't work in there. That was my first point. Oh, mean it doesn't work. No, it's going to be expensive because yeah. it's going to need disks. Yeah. So that's... Uh, oh, that's by the way, if you want to run ACFS and Ozone at the same uh, cluster, you, need to you have to partition your disk. You have to fragment your disks, he said. I think he means you have to have a separate partition because they can't clobber each other's files at that point. Or, well, or a, a subdirectory yeah. perhaps could be enough, a separate high directory. Maybe. 
That uh, might be enough. Because uh, that just uses directory to write its files in, right? True. Or maybe just add more disks to your machines if you have that yeah, capability. But he, had, he I, I think he meant to say that you can't just put it under the same root directory because it's going to be two yeah. different names. And name clashing will happen, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's that. So I think that's about it. Uh, yep, that's about it. So actually, uh, good talk. Mm-hmm. Very good look. I mean, Sanjay is always a good uh, good speaker, but he's it's so hard to take notes. So I'm sorry <laughs> if, it's, if this was chaotic. It's totally his fault, not mine. Uh, no. <laughs> but uh, now looking forward to Ozone. Yeah. Uh, it's going to be in Hadoop uh, uh, 3.0, but it's going to be uh, first as a preview. Yeah. And I think three. I think it's at 3.1. It's going to be GA-ish, but not the default yet. And yeah. it's going to be a slow move over. But again, if uh, indeed every uh, application already works with S3-like object stores with a flat key value namespace. Yeah, I think that's also everything. Yeah. Then the uh, adoption should be kind of easy to do. And uh, it should, uh, he didn't talk about this, but as far as I can tell, it should take away all the issues with federated HDFS and unified namespaces, because you can still have, you can, you can simply have one namespace that crosses across the whole thing. Nice. Because uh, HDFS federation, I've never really had many success stories of no. that, because people always think it does things it doesn't do. Yeah, agree. So, no, very good session. Happy we went to that one. Good. So, a um, bit of a sh- short description for the next one, really. Um, so, I went to the operating a secure multi-cloud data lake in a multi-cloud environment. And I was... Uh, I had high expectations from this, and sadly, they weren't met. So, this was uh, Sandeep Chandra of the San Diego Computer Center. Sorry, San Diego Supercomputer Center. Uh, big so, difference. Yeah, indeed. Um, so part of the sort of UCLA um, group of uh, establishments. Um, I, I suppose I was I was hoping that it would have covered more of the technology in a little bit more depth, um, but it seemed to skate over the surface of a lot of things. And it, it wasn't quite as well-developed a story as perhaps I was led to believe with the abstracts and the title and that sort of thing. But never mind, that's, that's you live and you learn. Um, what the, There were a few things about it that were interesting, though. Um, one was the fact that... Um, so they, they have a, a primary data center that is their on-prem environment... Um, and their uh, DR and business continuity solution is in the cloud. And so they are replicating their data um, through um, onto uh, S3, so they're using AWS, and in the event of a DR scenario, they will dynamically spin up um, their sort of disaster recovery environment against that S3, um, and they will continue operating like that. So that is, I mean, it, it is something I have seen elsewhere, um, but it's not particularly common to do that entire kind of that entire spin up like that. Yeah. Um, but it was, it was, you know, it's quite interesting the way that they were doing that. Um, they had mentioned around things like, uh, you know, some of the considerations they had were the fact that the the data was encrypted when it was on S three, you know, stored and. Um, S3 buckets that were encrypted and it was encrypted on the the source system but it wasn't necessarily encrypted um, per se when it was transmitted between so obviously my guess at least is that it was encrypted in terms of SSL encryption 
but yeah. the data itself wasn't encrypted during transmission. So they had some some interesting challenges around that. Sounds like they've worked through the challenges and uh, they do have that sort of all that ability. The other thing that was kind of interesting, um, and again, I was a little bit kind of disappointed with the the responses and the approach was they did mention some issues around um, sort of BI and the BI experience. Um, it's a it's a cloud era platform. They, it sounds like they had some some fairly significant challenges around the performance or the experience or the integration. It wasn't exactly clear, um, but he, he mentioned things like certain typical BI tools like uh, Cognos and SAP business objects you know, may not be suitable for, for use with Hadoop. And during the Q&A, someone asks, uh, or someone asked, I should say, um, you know, so, so what were they, you know, what did they do to solve that? And the response was, well, you know, the, the BI teams are looking at Tableau next. And I, I think that there are some very interesting things happening in BI and visualization against big data. There are a lot of things that are using far more native kind of uh, native tools, native yeah. technologies, native experiences on big data platforms. Because they need to copy your data, technically. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. I, I don't know. I, I, I was a little bit, um, a little bit disappointed with that. The other thing that was kind of interesting is um, they, they seem to have some real limitations around the sort of the security and the role-based access control. Um, they, they had a lot of, um, a lot of um, tables. Um, I'm assuming in Hive they were also using some Impala, so it could have been in either of those. Um, but you know, Sentry didn't give them the ability to do um, sort of row-level security, only column-based. So they ended up with a, a massive proliferation of views against the tables mm. in order to achieve row-level security, which is not no. it's not a great kind of not great approach. And obviously, you know, don't, Ranger has the ability to do that and more. So it was. It was sort of a little bit. Um, I thought Sentry could do that too. Actually. No, apparently not. Apparently not. Apparently, it's, it's, it's looking. Uh, it, they're looking to get that resolved um, in the future. And um, the the final thing was really the the cycle for sort of application upgrades versus platform upgrades. You know, the vendors release updates. Um, and in fact, we'll come back to this topic at the end of our session, I think, but. Yeah, platform vendors release updates when there's a vulnerability, um, and you know those usually come in within sort of hours, days, you know, weeks at most. Uh, and yet, the sort of the cycle for their application upgrade is you know measured in in their case, you know, months. Um, months so, even. Yeah. That's so a lot. I, I, I was expecting days, but months. Well, and as I say, I think we'll revisit this particular topic when we come to our final session that we both yeah. went to. I think, but. It, it was an okay session. I was a little bit disappointed. I, I don't know. I had I had different expectations. Mm. Okay, not too bad. Uh, I think we need to speed up a little bit here because I know you want to talk about the final uh, session in a bit more detail. So I suggest we go a bit fast to the next ones because mm -hmm. I don't have that much to say about my next ones anyway. Next one I went to is was the deep learning on Yarn running distributed TensorFlow MXNet Cafe NXE Boost on Hadoop clusters. Sounds like a very promising thing. The <laughs> sad thing is that if you are new to machine learning and deep learning, you got a 
very good introduction how to do machine learning and deep learning in general. Right. But the yarn thing was only two slides at the end. Oh. So I was a bit let down by that because a lot of the stuff I already knew. And you could also see in the audience that that wasn't exactly what was uh, as, as advertised on the tin, let's say. And uh, also, I mean, in the end, we saw a way of running a TensorFlow job in a Docker environment on Yarn and how the spec file for Yarn should be written. And that, that spec file is a JSON blob that is quite tedious to build. So they're building a wrapper around that. So that makes it easier. And that's about that was about it. That was about the talk. So it wasn't that much new in there. I mean, um, yeah, I mean, I knew already that Yarn has another capacity to schedule and isolate uh, GPUs as a mm -hmm. resource, which is, of course, necessary for these things to work the on the GPU. Uh, FPGA, GPU, pretty much the same thing, to be honest. It's a PCI device, right? So uh, that just works that way. Uh, he gave all the information on why isolation was required. It makes sense. Uh, you need Docker to avoid clobbering your Python files because TensorFlow by default needs very specific versions of your libraries. So Docker really uh, solves that problem. And yeah, that's about it. Uh, it's still very much a work in progress. If you want to do any kind of deep learning, at least as far as this talk is concerned, on the Hadoop, it's still a lot of manual CLI work, which yeah, I wouldn't really ex expect to be any different than that. But it seems to be working. Yeah, seems to be working progress, but uh, fairly solid, and uh, yeah, should be no issue to actually do this stuff. Mm. Although the next uh, session I'll talk about might uh, have a different answer on that <laughs> one. But uh, yeah, so a bit disappointed here. It was more about uh, the basics of machine learning and deep learning and difference, and not that much about yarn. But that be said. Apart from, yeah, you have to make a yarn spec that specifies the, the Docker image and where the data lies and stuff like that. There wasn't that much more to be added, apparently. Right. Okay. So, yeah. Back to you. Fair enough. So, my next session was really good. It was um, by Audi. Um, the session was building Audi's enterprise big data platform. Um, so, it's a, a duo, Carsten Herb and uh, Matthias Grantz. Apologies if I butchered your name, pronunciation of your names. Um, and really, they, they went through their entire big data journey, really. And they are still relatively new to this world. They, they started about two years ago um, with a sort of um, a very, very small kind of four-node cluster um, in you know, 2015, some, some basic approaches looking to do things like, um, so they, they had two use cases. One was screwdriver analysis for their manufacturer <laughs> and to see how, uh, how, you know, how that was actually affecting um, the reliability of the, the products um, in the field and also monitoring the full usage of all the various buttons and features within a car. Um, specifically, they were looking at you know, company cars um, because they were able to get the data from those, but sort of yeah. feeding that data back and, and getting a better picture of, you know, how many times do people put the windows up and down with the air conditioning on and, you know, things like that. Um, and, you know, they started to sort of, um, you know, get some value from all that sort of experience. But the, the nicest part about this presentation, for me at least, was they they walked through their, I guess their... They're more of their operations journey. So um, you know, they started off with you know, local user management, um, simple ACLs for access control, 
and their their cluster uh, sitting in their their core corporate network. Um, that last piece, by the way, it turns out was a, a terrible idea, and uh, I can certainly <laughs> echo that from my uh, from my knowledge and experience of uh, of, of being uh, in this world for a little while. It is a terrible idea, and they regretted it later. But they they went through like different steps like that, and they they produced this really nice. In fact, it was, it was a beautiful, simple chart of their journey, and you know where where things were sort of going across, and then. Later on, they made a change, and that that change sort of invalidated some of the work they'd previously done. But you know, it was the next the next approach, the next thing to do. And they were very honest about you know the things they got right, and also the the things they got wrong. Um, right. Really good session. Really enjoyed it. Um, there was lots and lots and lots more sort of useful, interesting things that they went through. Um, but uh, but yeah, it it was a great session. And uh, I would thoroughly recommend if you're interested in sort of that that early part of the journey, that sort of uh, the first two years of, of the of the experience, um, you know, interested in understanding that that part of the journey, definitely check the session out. Yeah, it's remarkable that actually car manufacturer who are usually very secretive about everything they do is uh, actually opening up about the stuff. That's nice. They did mention that this is. You know, one of there are multiple big data systems at Audi. This this sure. particular one is targeted at a certain set of use cases. No, so it's so not it's not the R and D sort of autonomous driving setup and things but, like that. But, still, but it was good. Uh, it was good. It's a good opening. Um, yeah, for my next session, it's uh, very easily done because I skipped that one. Because <laughs> I, I did, uh, I walked around the exhibition hall where all the little boots were, and I took uh, many interviews from the people there, two-minute interviews, and we'll be assembling those for an episode which we'll release probably next week. Because <laughs> with uh, this week's two episodes here, uh, there's just no time for us to prepare an episode for no, next very week. True. So I thought it was a good idea to just do that to give people an idea of who was here. And uh, yeah, as, as I said, there were some new names in there, so I thought it was going to be fun. But uh, yeah, I had to skip a session for that. So back to you. Fair enough. So my next session was, um, yeah, it was another bit of a strange one. So this was um, Santander UK, and the presenter was Nicolette Boulevant. Um, and there was a second co-presenter who I didn't catch their name. They weren't on the slides, and they weren't on the app. So, um, <laughs> Incognito presenters. Yeah, yeah. Okay. It, they, it, Nicolette did mention that... Uh, Hit that uh, he was a last minute addition, but um, so the title. See, I found it a little bit misleading because the title was "Reaching Scale Limits on a Hooded Platform: Lessons from a Journey of Speed and Agility," um, which all does sound very good. And again, you know, similar to Audi, they were very honest about their their experiences. Uh, you know, so quick intro of who they were. And then they gave sort of little vignettes, I guess, of their experiences at sort of three months in, five months in, nine months in, 12 months in, you know, two years in. Um, and, you know, a little bit of a peek into their into their future. Um, but what it comes down to for me is their environment is still, it's not really all that large. Um, they're... Um, you know, less than a hundred nodes, um, and you know they they are doing some interesting stuff. Um, you know, they're they're running uh, what I would call the the sort of the classical um, 
big data DR scenario. And I think this this is something that we see, you know, fairly regularly in this space. Certainly Centrica do something very similar where you have, you know, a primary cluster. This is where the majority of your data ingest happens, the ETL and all that sort of thing. Data is replicated from your primary cluster to your secondary cluster. The primary cluster is used for a lot of the, the real-time use cases and a lot of the things where people need that up to the second real-time data. The secondary cluster is used for a lot of the more general purpose analytic work cases, data science, data exploration, and all that sort of thing. Um, and in the event of a DR scenario, then of course all the workloads have to collapse into a single cluster. You have to understand the priority of your workloads. Tier one priority workloads definitely execute. Yeah. Tier two will execute if there's availability, so on and so forth. And that's what I would call the classical DR. That seems to be the the current best of breed state of what the majority of organisations are doing um, that that are doing this at some scale. But to me, I, I I didn't really get the feeling that Santander were were at the the very limits of the the platform. Um, if I mean, they've definitely been through the wars and they've definitely gone through, um, you know, an interesting journey and had had some scars from it. And, you know, building up a, a very nice team and that sort of thing. But, uh, yeah, I think the, 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 uh, the, expert, the title perhaps was a little bit misleading. Yeah, it's always hard to pick it out. It's always absurd. <coughs> Excuse me. You see, Dave is being annoying here because he knows that I don't have time to edit this episode and editors coughs out. So, yeah. Sorry, listeners, not me, it's him. Indeed. Uh, send me, send me how I should kill him and not kill, <laughs> punish him. Anyway, moving on to my next session. I was powering TensorFlow with big data, Apache Beam, Flink, and Spark by Holden Corral. All the cool toys. Uh, all the cool toys. And that was also a bit of the problem with the session because uh, Holden has a very interesting way of presenting. It's fun to watch. If you haven't seen Holden yet, go to YouTube. You'll know what I mean. But it was a very chaotic thing. And the idea was to show that you can do the TensorFlow in a multiple different ways by passing it through Flink or, 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 or Spark or whatever, or Beam or whatever. But you always have a problem where you have to kind of move your data through a pipeline of things, moving from Java to Python to TensorFlow and back and things like that. And every time you move your data to one of those gateways, it slows down because you either use a, a, a Unix pipe, which Holden didn't like, or <laughs> you use a file <laughs> in between or something like that. And the idea is here to, to take Apache Arrow, which I don't know that much about, but mm. apparently can take the place of those things, and use that to speed things up. And then uh, Holden showed a couple of ways of doing that, what worked, didn't work. It was a very nice, this works and this doesn't work thing, but the end of the story was it doesn't work unless you're doing it in a very specific environment at Google. Uh, so don't try this at home, but they're working on it to make it work uh, further. The thing for me is that it was a fun, brain dump let's say and i'm pretty sure i learned a couple of things and that's a couple of things I'm going to search deeper on but there wasn't really a, a, a real end message in there or something i'd say yeah i learned this here mm-hmm. so also i didn't take many notes because it was just a, a waterfall of information coming out on all different things and how it worked in each other not working in each other and uh, yeah i can't say much more than that about it if you are interested in there Go and uh, look it up on YouTube, but don't expect to find anything that will work in production. Right. Holden specifically said it, it is, will not work. If you want to rewrite your CV, try this in production and you'll need it. 
Nice. But uh, it kind of showed a bit of what the things are, what's happening in the, in the space at the moment. Because that was a bit of my over, overall feeling with the TensorFlow, with the, the deep learning things on, on Hadoop. It's something that a lot of people want to do. Uh, and you can do it. There's a possibility of doing it. But from the point, point of view of Polish, uh, Hive is a diamond it, compared. It, it's not that <laughs> consumable yet. No, you really have to be down in the trenches. It's back to Hadoop 1.0 times. Mm-hmm. Maybe you have to down, down in the in the trenches and do it all by hand. Yeah. So um, in this case, uh, Holden actually patched uh, Spark data frames some, somewhere to do it differently with Arrow. <laughs> so right. not production ready at all. <laughs> well, that's it. it was a fun thing. The, the time flew. No problem there, but uh, I'm entirely sure that was a good session to, to choose. All right, so my next session, one of my favorite sessions of the day, um, was Apache Metron building a future-proof cybersecurity platform with uh, our good friends uh, at QSite IT. So we had uh, Bass and uh, Michael from QSite um, doing their, their double act. Um, and uh, it, was, it was just a great session. Um, they went through... Um, explaining their, you know, what was their existing architecture, um, uh, explaining sort of what they what they were doing. So QSite are a managed security services provider. They sort of deploy um, agents uh, on site with their customers, and those agents are used to collect data, uh, so logs, NetFlow, all those kind of things. Um, and uh, and then they they were sort of they pushed those through their their sort of legacy uh, seam star platform security um, incident and event monitoring platform. Uh, but you know the the agent itself decided what it was going to collect. The seam itself was you know basically a black box proprietary solution that they couldn't you know tinker or fiddle with. And uh, every time they onboarded a new customer, it meant a brand new license fee. <laughs> and uh, yeah, they weren't they weren't on on board with that. They actually sort of uh, wanted a full multi-tenant solution. Uh, and so you know, pretty much uh, a year ago now, um, they started their their journey on Apache Metron. And uh, so the you know, very broadly, the picture looks the same. It's just that several of the components sort of get replaced and some of the components get significantly smarter. So rather than having some, you know, relatively dumb closed sensor at, uh, at on customer site, they have some, some you know, uh, a small agent uh, running Minify, um, pushing data through across, across NiFi to their core infrastructure. Um, rather than multiple single silos, um, they end up with a, a centralized multi-tenant uh, Apache Metron infrastructure and things like that. And it was it was just a really good session because they went through um, sort of the business value for doing this, the fact that they moved from um, you know very much a, a traditional sort of rule-based approach to security to basically a risk-based model of security. Um, so you know, if if there's a if there's a, a rootkit that's present, you know, the example they used was if there's a rootkit present on the CIO's laptop, that has a significantly higher risk than if there's a rootkit present on a, a, a test laptop that 
you know, no one ever uses anyway, and it's sitting in the corner collecting dust. Uh, and so the you know, very simple sort of explanation there, but it got into a far more complexity around that. They went through things like um, behavior, behavioral analysis that they're doing um, around profiling across multiple data sources simultaneously. Um, and the sort of the, the things that they really uh, picked up from this at the end, the key sort of uh, elements for them were they, they, they had a tendency to gather uh, a lot of data uh, and it was, it was sometimes it was a challenge to understand a new log source that came in, not from a, a technical sort of perspective, you know, how do you parse it, enrich it, whatever, but more of a case of, you know, how are we going to find some use or some pattern within this particular application data source, for example. And so, you know, their, their takeaway from that was actually work with the data science team to actually analyse, you know, a, a good chunk of sample of that log so you can understand um, what that might mean from, a, from, a, from that sort of perspective. Because uh, I, I'm kind of thinking that their whole system is based on detecting outliers and, and normalised data. Indeed. And if you don't understand the data yeah. through analysis, you don't know what the outliers can be. Exactly yeah. right. Um, and they also sort of mentioned things like the, the importance of a benchmarking of pipeline, um, not something that they've done um, sort of previously. They'd gone ahead and just sort of, uh, I wouldn't say hacked, but let's say ex- um, enthusiastically developed uh, additional functionality around Metro. That's one of the things they liked about it was the fact that it gave them the opportunity to innovate, you know, mm. that they would never have had with any of their previous okay. sort of platforms. Um, but they also never really thought about performance quite so much when they've been doing that development. So when it came to you know running a, 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 an initial small-scale pilot with some of their production customers, they actually ended up having to can it after like a two-week process because right, they, they'd introduced some other stuff and they hadn't really done the step-by-step sort of benchmarking to really understand what some of the impacts were. You know, and Fair play, they, they, they owned up to it. They also got, you know, went through then the rigorous process of benchmarking each of these different things as they reach a thing that's a bottleneck or slows it Lessons down. Lessons learned there. Exactly. Get it, give it some focus, get it fixed, move on to the next. Did they kind of feed that uh, those changes back to the open source? or this, uh, they, Yeah, yeah, they did. They didn't get um, any feed, uh, any peer review feedback that, uh, hang on, this is going uh, So I was actually... Um, loosely part of this sort of experience and you know, so in some cases it's uh, it, you know, that really they just uncovered bugs because of the way they were doing things. In some cases it was really software configuration changes, like oh, tweaks right, that yeah. need to be made that's, for, that's for certain clear. things um, and in some cases it was things that they developed that maybe needed to be kind of revised <laughs> or, or tweaked to make better use of the way that the Metron was operating. Um, okay, nice. But it was good. It was really good. And uh, they uh, again, if you're if you're interested in Apache Metron, as I'm sure everybody out there is, um, <laughs> and Dave is not biased at all. No, not at all. Okay, maybe a little bit. Um, <laughs> then it's definitely a session I would recommend checking out. Right. Yep. On to the uh, the final session of the day. Then yeah, the final session. We both enter the same session. I think you know more about the details than I do because it's a, a UK uh, organization. It is. It's a UK organisation, and it's uh, uh, it's someone that I, I I have dealt with on a fairly regular basis, and 
always enjoying have a, having a chat with, and that's uh, David Walker of uh, WorldPay. And uh, he was joined by uh, Shrikanth Venkat of Hortonworks. But really, it was, it was, the core of it was really David's show. And um, the title, the, I, this seems to be a summit of really long titles. <laughs> they did their best, yes. <laughs> but, um, I, can, I, I know, because with my little dashboard, I had to retype it all manually, so thank you a lot. <laughs> <laughs> so the title for this one was, It's Not Just a Necessary Evil, It's Good for Business. Uh, implementing PCI DSS controls for the Hadoop ecosystem at the UK's largest payment pr- processor. <sighs> it made it even longer there. <laughs> Indeed. So it, it was it was a really good session. If if you're interested in PCI DSS and what's required, understanding the split between what the vendor can do to help you, what you will need to do yourself what you may well need to look at external third-party solutions for. This is absolutely uh, the key session for you. Um, you know, there, there were some really interesting sort of pieces about, um, specifically, you know, David's section, around things like uh, a lot of this is to do with process and procedure, and a lot of it is to do with uh, tools and technology. But the, one of the things that David called out is that it's just as important um, that you have the organizational culture to focus on these things as well. You yeah. can have all the tools and technology and process and procedure you like, but if the people aren't aligned with what you're trying to achieve, you're not going to succeed. Um, and uh, I, it, was, it was a great session. Um, um, the, some of the additional things that were, were covered were around um, just the, the complexities of performing patching and updating and things like that. Um, uh, some of the stats that, uh, that, that David quoted were, were essentially the, uh, the number of updates that they have to do um, across the environment. Um, you know, last year, they did 296 upgrades. So in 2017... 296 upgrades um, and reaching back in, in the conversation to some of the earlier sessions where people were really, really struggling to do um, you know, upgrades it, it, some people are just doing it right is, is all I can really say some people have it down to a fine art and he's talking about application upgrades he's talking about um, data upgrades He's talking about upgrades to the HP um, sort of underlying components, um, you know, server-related stuff. He's talking about OS upgrades. He's talking about HDP upgrades. Um, he's factoring it all in. He basically says that you know, basically there's an upgrade happening every single day and twice on a Friday. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's, that's horrible. <laughs> and and, and he, he, you know, he's, his, uh, uh, his, his team hates him for that. But he's, uh, you know, that's that's just the way it's got to be, and they're just going through the final pieces of their current uh, PCI DSS certification, and you know that should be, you know, done in the next couple of weeks, and uh, and it lasts for twelve months, and they're planning for the next cycle of PCI DSS certification starts in September. So, <laughs> I mean, it's it is a continuous cycle. It's a continually moving target. Um, it is something that. Um, you know, PCI DSS is just one of those key standards that, that if you're dealing with payment data, you need to be thinking about. 
The other piece I really liked about this session was the approach that PCI DSS is a... Essentially, it's a set of minimum requirements. You should aim to achieve or surpass these okay. requirements. And if you surpass them, it puts you in good stead for the next release, the next, the release, next yeah. version. And you know, he mentioned things like GDPR coming on. Because of the way they'd approached things, they were already in a reasonably good standard to, uh, to be compliant with GDPR. Obviously, there's always more exciting things to do. But uh, yeah, it was a it was a really good uh, good session. And just to sort of wind things up, uh, Shrikant then ran through just a quick walkthrough of things like things that you could do in Atlas, things that you could do in Ranger, some of the quick high points through the different UIs, and uh, and then it was basically you know thank you very much and good night. Yeah, no, it was here's the beer. <laughs> <laughs> very true. Well, here's the beer, and unless you're going to go and record a podcast. Yes. Ah, <laughs> uh, well. And they for all listeners, right? Indeed, indeed. Well, all in all, full day. Yeah. I mean, any, any other thoughts on that last session? Or No, for, unfortunately, I was, I was in the session, but I kind of had a, 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 I was going to say home emergency. It was a business home emergency, so I had to do some uh, email, quick emailing with the colleagues. So I kind of missed uh, the, 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 the good part. I just was able to follow the, the part from uh, Hortmers, who was basically just talking about... Uh, the same demo with Atlas and Ranger and yeah, yeah. authentication, so that wasn't very fun. I did uh, note, uh, catch a few glances at uh, David's slides where he actually went in pretty much detail mm. uh, with the things that he did with the, the, the color created, the color coded uh, green, red. Yeah, <laughs> that was yeah. actually nice to see the details and how how nitty gritty it actually gets in there. Yeah. Well, yeah, which it should be, I guess. Yeah, DCI compliance. Yeah, it's a thing. Yeah, and the, actually, the, the final thing I would mention is that they actually gave um, as, as part of this process obviously they've, they've been working with Hortmuggs for quite some time um, and you know, in the early days of uh, things like Atlas um, David basically came to Hortmuggs and said you know, this, this entire document contains everything you will need to implement or fix in Atlas for me to be compliant and all that stuff is basically in Atlas now yeah, so if you're nice. looking to achieve PCI DSS compliance um Please buy David Walker a beer. Because <laughs> he did a lot of work for you. Or, or a cider. Not a cider. Um, but yeah, it, it was uh, it was a good session. Thoroughly enjoyed it. So I guess with that, any reflections on the day? Um, no, not really. The only thing I remarked is that uh, at the end I went to almost all Hortonworks-led uh, presentations. It was a bit of a surprise for me. Mm-hmm. Um, no, a bit, again, some 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 sessions are very good. Some are a little less. It's always a bit hit and miss. You never you can never predict it completely, which is a mm-hmm. good thing. Because sometimes you find a hidden gem as well. Yeah, true. Uh, looking forward to tomorrow. Basically. Indeed, indeed. Bring it on, keynote and, demos. Yeah, but uh, that's for tomorrow. Yeah. So for now, it's all the time we have for today. We hope you enjoyed this serving of bite-sized big data. We will be back next day, that is tomorrow, with a brand new episode with day two of the DataWorks Summit. Until then, if you really can't wait a day, you can go to www.drawingalpha.org, find more information about our uh, podcast, include a feedback, including a feedback form. You can also follow us on Twitter at the, on the at Hadoopcast tag. I don't tweet that much, so it's not that much in a position if you do follow us there. You can also contact us by email to podcast at drawingalpha.org, send us any thoughts, comments, criticisms, and other feedback you may have. Until next time, which is tomorrow, my name is John. And my name is Dave. And we look forward to talking to you. Thank you.
keep saying tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. All right. See you then.